0: We're following the story from Genesis right the way through to Revelation in 12 months. If you're interested, our techie guys, thank you, have made it easier for you to access the podcast by putting them all on one page with the themes and stuff of the story. So it's all there now. If you go to the story, you can find it all there or click on iTunes and the usual. Uh, stuff in the usual way. So the book of Daniel is split into two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 is the life of Daniel, the history, some of what he did and said and then the final part of the book 7 through to 12 is like an appendix, more details about his prophecies, words that he spoke, uh, that God gave him about things that one day would be true. Now, we know the story, God's people have been willfully and persistently rebellious over many years, and we've looked at all of that over the last three or four weeks together. And as a result, the world power of Babylon has risen up and taken many of the Jews captive into uh, exile, into Babylon. And Daniel and some of his friends are some of those early captives taken from Jerusalem Uh, to Babylon with the plan that they would be stripped of their identity, stripped of their religion and made to work for Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon, a pagan, ruthless king. It was a catastrophic calamity for the people of God and for Daniel and his mates in particular. Babylon was as pagan as they come. Later on in the Bible, Babylon would be used as a word to mean as evil as anything could be. And so you'll find Babylon personified as, uh, as demonic and satanic in the books at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation in particular. Babylon was a huge, imposing city. It had a massive wall, 60 miles around the city. The wall was about 85, from memory, feet thick. They used to have chariot races on top of the wall. It was so strong and imposing. Every 65 foot, there was a higher watchtower where the guards would look out over the city and, more importantly, out to the surrounding territory to make sure no one was coming to attack it. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon were said to be one of the seven wonders. This is a massive, impressive city. And towering over the city was the statue of Marduk, the god Marduk. In fact, everywhere you looked in Babylon, there were huge statues to the gods. And the gods were given the credit for the wealth, the success, and the military might of Babylon. Babylon. Everywhere you look, the message was the same. This is how strong we are. There's no one in the world as strong and as mighty as we are. And everywhere you look, the gods that towered over the city were a reminder that these gods, small g in our world, were the gods responsible for bringing this glory and this might about. To that city, imposing, oppressive, demonic, pagan, these men in chains Young men, Daniel probably no more than 15 years of age, were led as captives. To these Jews, the gods with the small G suddenly looked enormously powerful. And their god with the big G that ruled over Jerusalem suddenly looked so ever so small. Because their little town, city of Jerusalem, was lying in ruins. They'd been overrun. They didn't stand a chance against the might of the Babylonians and their gods. Away from their spiritual home, so taken out of Jerusalem, where they were all the same, and they all worshipped the God of heaven and earth, into Babylon, where the rulers of that kingdom seemed so powerful and seemed to tower so high above them, moving from there to there, suddenly their God seemed ever so small. When we find ourselves away from our spiritual home, when we find ourselves away from the church community, where people are like me, they worship God like I do, they think like I do, they have the same attitude and worldview as I do. In here, God can seem so big, but when you get out there tomorrow morning, this same God can seem ever so small small. You with me? Anyone ever felt like that? That between Sunday and Monday our God shrinks because the might of the rulers of this world seems so strong, seems so oppressive, evil seems to flourish and all the rest of it and our God seems so small. This book is written in that context. And the remarkable thing about this book that's written in that context, in that place where people like you and me, people like Daniel would naturally think, my golly, look what these gods, small g, have done. Is our God really as strong as we say? Is he really the creator of the ends of the earth? Can we really trust him with our lives? You imagine there's a 15-year-old boy being taken out of that, where the temple was, and where you could know the forgiveness of your sins, where everyone worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they knew the Old Testament Scriptures emerging, into this, where they were going to spend the rest of their days. Our God, he's only that small. Remarkably though. In that context, we're so often you and I in our workplaces or wherever it might be in our communities, out there in the world or or with wherever it is, groups of people that don't share what we share, out there when the God seems so big and our God seems so small and we feel so hopeless, Daniel's book is a book of hope. How does Daniel find hope out there? That's what I need to understand because Hope in here is relatively easy. Yeah? But hope out there is a lot harder, isn't it? So sometimes we even go undercover, don't we? And scurry back in next Sunday, gasping, gasping for some fresh air. What did Daniel knew? What he knew, we all need to know. What Daniel understood, every single one of us needs to understand. We need to understand that whatever situation we find ourselves in, even if we end up over here in a situation that we absolutely loathe, in a situation that is the antithesis of who I am as a person, that's where Daniel was placed. Daniel discovered that over here, God is enough. God is enough over here. That if faith works... It has to work here, doesn't it? If we're going to transform the world, it will be faith that works here that will be part of that transformation. What Daniel discovered that not just there, it's not just there that people hear God speak, it's not just there that people know God's peace, it's not just there that people get healed, but over here, he discovered that God was enough. And oh God, would I discover that please? And would you discover that? Perhaps even as we share these words this morning. And so we discover then the main theme of the book, that God is sovereign. And just as when we looked at Job, Job needed to discover, did he not, in the end, that God is sovereign despite whatever he suffered. True? What Daniel is discovering, that God is sovereign despite where God might leave him placed. Even in the land of the many gods that seem so powerful, God will prove himself to be sovereign there. Both messages the same. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. So where is the place for you? Where is the place for you where the powers of this world seem so overwhelming? Or ask it a different way. Where is the place for you when God seems a lot smaller than he does in other places for you? Where is the place when it looks like God's got his back against the wall and seemingly he's no longer in control? For some of us, that's the work environment. For some of us, it might be in our communities or on our neighbourhoods. Where is it for you where God has shrunk in your perception of him? God is sovereign. And into that situation, be it at work or in your community, the book of Daniel speaks speaks of the Most High God who is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. The book of Daniel is an unequivocal celebration that God is always sovereign. That our God is never, ever too small. And that he holds even the nations In his hands. Here it comes again at verse 35 of chapter 4. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. The powers of this earth that look so big and so dominant and so oppressive to us compared to God are so small. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand. So whilst the main theme of the book is that God is sovereign, it also presents us with a major challenge. You see, the Bible contrasts what happens with Daniel and his men, his friends, with another group of people that the Bible tells us about in Psalm 137. The people in Psalm 137 we find ourselves possibly having much more sympathy with. By the rivers of Babylon, we've been taken from Jerusalem, we're in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. There are no poplars, sorry, rather, there on the poplars, we hung our harps. Harps for worship. How can we possibly worship God if he's placed us here? Worshipping here is fine. We've got the temple and we've got our harps all ready to go and we sing the Lord's song because we're in the Lord's land. But what about here? We can't sing. Let's put the music group away, the worship band away. Let's pack it all up because we cannot possibly worship God here. That's what they said. The tragedy is that for those people, their hearts were captive or have been taken captive by Babylon, not just their lives, their bodies. There will be a distinct difference in Daniel because his heart remains free. You can have a free heart and live there. Isn't that brilliant? You can have a free heart and still find yourself living in the land of captivity. And so they they said, well, this is just no place to worship. And they got angry and bitter. Instead of praising and worshipping God, they began to curse the Babylonians, to hate them and to say uh, uh, horrible, vengeful things about the Babylonians. They said, well, I just wish we'd sort these Babylonians out. I wish someone would just get their kids and dash them against the rocks. That's not quite a Matt Redman song, is it? Maybe it is. Joke. And so, huge contrast between Daniel and his friends and these men sitting by the river saying, it's all hopeless, it's all lost. I can't possibly worship God here. What they were saying is that they can only worship God if the environment is right. That their worship is dependent on their circumstances. Now, you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? It's hard to get your head around, isn't it? That their worship is dependent on what was going on in their lives. Not blessed be your name in the land of plentiful and blessed be your name when it's really tough and I don't understand it and it's black as I've ever known it. See when tomorrow you find yourself under the rule of a pagan ruler, when you find yourself away from your spiritual home, spiritually living in a foreign land, be it your work, your street, your community, whatever that relates for you. The challenge is this. It's not whether you've worshipped God in here, but the real question is, do we worship him everywhere? Do we worship him everywhere? That's the challenge of Daniel. Okay, you with me? Let's get into the book. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, you might want to have it open in front of you. Uh, someone shout out the page number again, that would be great. 833? Eight three three. 883. That's an 8, an 8, and a 3. Bingo, anybody? No, no, no. Sorry, that's a, sorry, that's another place. Okie dokie, here we go. Daniel chapter 1. He's a young man, 15 years of age, and he's gone off to Babylon under duress. It's like your 15-year-old boy being taken to where modern-day Babylon is, the country of Iraq, to serve in what was Saddam Hussein's palace when he was alive. Suddenly, your job doesn't seem quite so bad. But that's the scenario for Daniel. That's where he and his friends are being taken And we get introduced right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 to the first of two ideas I want to share with you uh, this morning. The first is this. Daniel worshipped where he was by saying, yes. And I'll explain that in just a moment. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this is verse 1, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who did the delivering? Hello? Hello? God. Who's in charge? God. is in charge? No. He just thinks he is. Okay? Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasury house of his God. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Four young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. I would have settled for one of those. Denon and his men get all of them. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, strip them of their identity, and make them serve the new foreign ruler, part of the way of conquering and infiltrating uh, the known world. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among them was Daniel and his mates. What was their response to that? Did they kick and scream and shout, no? And you might say, well, of course they didn't. They had no choice uh, about that because Nebuchadnezzar was the king and he would have had their throat. That is absolutely true. But what is clear by the end of the chapter is that Daniel and his friends were willing to say yes to the place where God in his sovereignty had put them. They put their hearts into it. It's as if Daniel and his friends had already learned what Paul would say in the New Testament. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not men, whether that man be Nebuchadnezzar or whoever it might be. Dan and his friends essentially are saying, look, we don't want to be here. We might not even understand why we were here. We've got no idea what good purpose God might have in allowing all this to happen. Our days are as dark as they can be. But now we're here. If this is where God in his sovereignty has placed me, then the very least we can do is to work for him with all our hearts. They said yes to the situation that they found themselves in. They declared that their love for God was greater than their loathing of where they were placed, of where they were. Some of us are in situations this morning where we are useless to God because we haven't got over the loathing. We're still jumping up and down how terrible the situation is, how awful it is, and it probably is as terrible and as awful as Daniel faced, for sure. But unless we get past of the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, I'm totally hacked off with God that he should bring me to Ipswich, or totally fed up that I've got to have that job, or I live in that street, or I have to cope with that situation, or that is going on in my life, how dare God put me in this situation? For as long as you are there, You are of little or no use to him. And you'll spit out curses. Just like the people sitting by the river of Babylon did those days. These guys said yes and God blessed their efforts. Verse 17... To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 19, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. What a result! But it was only just beginning. You never know what God will do if you put your heart and your soul into serving him where he's placed you. So in the places where you are, where he in his sovereignty has allowed you to be, are you more like Daniel or the group by the river? What are you like? when you enter your foreign land. God's intention for you is to bloom where you are planted. It should be a fridge magnet, and it probably is. Some of us find ourselves longing for a different pot, don't we? God's intention for you is to bloom where you're planted. And yet we miss it sometimes because all we can long for is a different pot. Maybe some of us with renewed enthusiasm commitment, out of love to God say, well, this is where I am. And to be honest, God, I don't understand it. I don't want to be here. From my human perspective, it doesn't make any sense. But I know, God, you are enough here. And I'm going to serve you here with all of my heart, because that's the very least that I can do. It's time to find that hope where God has placed you. Hope that comes not from where you are, but from who you are with. That's the promise of the book. Chapter 2 helps us to see that God had a purpose that Daniel couldn't know. Unbeknown to Daniel, God was positioning him to be in the right place at the right time. Chapter 2 opens with the king having a dream. Uh, and he was so fed up, this king, this ruthless pagan king of being lied to by his advisors. He says to his advisors, I want you to interpret my dream. One catch, I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me the dream first, and then uh, I want you to tell me the interpretation. The advisors, not surprisingly, the astrologers in verse 10 says, well, that's not really fair. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, I'm not really worried about that. If you don't do it, I'll kill you. Seems fair enough to me. So just before they're about to be killed... Daniel, here's what's going on, he gets wind of it, and verse 14, he speaks to the official with wisdom and tact. See it there in verse 14? How brilliant to have both of those things in the same person. Wisdom and tact. Verse 17 and 18, he goes back to his friends and gets them praying. He says to his friends, our God is sovereign, isn't he? Let's pray. We can sort this out. We can stop this from happening. And they all pray together. Verse 20, it's nighttime, and God gives Daniel the interpretation. In the morning, Daniel goes off to the king and says, King, I think you don't need to kill any of those people because actually I know the interpretation to your dream. Let me share it with you. And we could spend ages on the detail of this dream. And it's absolutely brilliant. And one day, um, we, we must do. But I'll resist that temptation this morning a little bit, at least. The basic message to Nebuchadnezzar was this. This kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, that you are the ruler of, at the moment seems so powerful and mighty. It seems so invincible and so eternal. But it's only yours because God has given it to you. Chapter 2, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field. The kingdoms are in God's hands. Who's relieved about that? But this kingdom, Daniel goes on, interpreting the vision, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, this kingdom that seems so invincible will one day fall and another will rise in its place. This kingdom will soon be replaced by another and that kingdom will be replaced by another and that kingdom will be replaced by another. Four world powers... Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about that Daniel interprets. One will replace the other, will replace the other, will replace the other. Now those of you that know your will powers know that this was Babylon, then it was the Medes and Persians, then it was the Greek, then it was the Romans. Romans is the fourth power. Then this this vision from God that Nebuchadnezzar had is absolutely brilliant. And one day I'll get really excited about it because at verse 44... What Nebuchadnezzar dreams in his dream that Daniel interprets is that one day, out of that fourth kingdom, at the time, sorry, not out of, at the time of that fourth kingdom, a new kingdom will come that will rise up, that will be utterly invincible, and will, in the end, crush every other kingdom of the world. Hallelujah. So who is it talking about... It will come at the time of the fourth kingdom, the Romans, who came when the Romans were ruling the world, whose kingdom might crush all the others. Jesus, fantastic. And that's a real surprise, isn't it? Because we've been through the whole of the Old Testament and there's no mention of Jesus whatsoever. If you've been here week on week on week on week on week, you'll know that that's absolutely not the truth. Jesus. So verse 45, here we go. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock, which has already been mentioned in our service this morning. The rock cut out of a mountain, but not made, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, uh, and the gold to pieces. In other words, a rock that smashed the whole statue, the whole image of these nations that would rise and fall. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Who was the rock in which Moses hid? Jesus. Who was the rock that the water came from in the desert from which they drank? Jesus. And in case you don't know, Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the rock, he says, was Christ. The rock is Jesus. There in the heart of Daniel's book that's in the heart of pagan country. Jesus, where it looks like all the powers are lined up against God and his good kingdom. Jesus is there and the promise of his coming kingdom that will knock and crush every kingdom of the earth and will rise invincible in the end. See, Daniel understood that. And we need to understand it too. Daniel knew what we must do, that in Christ we are part of a kingdom that will never, ever fail. And when we stand over here, and all the gods seemingly are all around us, and their power and their oppression is all over us, there's one thing we need to remember, that if we stand in Christ, every rule and every authority will fall. I thought that was all right. Oh, that was, you know, I thought that was okay. So question this morning. Whose kingdom do you want to align yourself with in the end? Where where do you want to be in the end? Where do you want to be? There is a kingdom right now that looks so powerful. You see them around our world. There are so many mighty powers. And we in our lifetime have seen mighty powers rise and fall, have we not? The powers will come and they will go. But there is a kingdom that comes from the rock that will be inaugurated at the time of the Romans, says Daniel. His kingdom will never fail. It will go on forever and it will crush all the kingdoms of the earth. And that incidentally is the message of the second part of the book of Daniel. The prophecies are quite complex, chapter 7 through to chapter 12. Essentially they say Jesus wins. So there's books and books and books and books about it. If you go to a, a theological library and get all the books on Daniel chapter 7 to 12, you can just go, nah, Jesus wins, it's easy. That's what it says. Prophecies about all the kingdoms that will rise and fall and then Jesus' kingdom that will rise and come again and he will reign eternally forever. So how did Nebuchadnezzar respond to all of that? He acknowledged that the sovereignty of God was true. A new kingdom will come It will come from this rock, the wind swept them away, it says, without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The response of Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan tyrant, worshipped the living God. Hallelujah. How did it all start? Because the young man says, it doesn't matter where I am, I'm going to worship him. Doesn't matter where I am, I'm going to worship him. Doesn't matter where I am, he's in control. Doesn't matter where I am, he's sovereign. Doesn't matter where I am, he's higher. Doesn't matter what I see, he's higher. Doesn't matter what intimidates me, he's higher. Doesn't matter what oppresses me, he's higher. I'm going to fix my gaze on him. No wonder Paul said to the church in Colossians, when equally there were gods of that age, the gods of Gnosticism and so on, seeming so strong and powerful, Paul said, this is a trick, lift your eyes to the heavens and see where Christ really is. And so Daniel had his perspective right, because he committed himself to worship, to saying yes. So I want to ask you a few questions then. Did Daniel know the power of the living God, where he was placed in God's sovereignty? Yes. Did Daniel discover the purpose for God, even in that place? Did Daniel know the joy of making a difference for God's kingdom, even there? Are not those the things we long to do? We long to know God's power. We long to know his purpose. We long to play our part in his kingdom. And we come here every week and we say, Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to be part of what you are doing. And God says, just begin to worship me here. I don't pretend that's easy. I don't pretend that's a simple thing. Well, it might be simple, but I don't pretend it's easy. But Daniel discovered perhaps something that We all need to discover afresh in our day and in our time. This cycle went on, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar slips back and and gets himself into a pickle and and there's another vision and and God's word never fails and eventually Nebuchadnezzar is brought to his knees and he confesses that God is the Lord again and it goes right round the loop. And because Daniel is faithful, Nebuchadnezzar finds himself again worshipping the living God. But it could all have gone wrong. It could all have gone wrong unless Daniel learnt something else. You see, the second key idea here is that Daniel worshipped where he was by saying, no, no. The idea of saying no is a theme that runs right through these chapters. Daniel and his friends were determined because their allegiance was to a higher power to serve that higher power even in the land of the Babylonians, even in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But they also decided there would be times when, because of their allegiance to that higher power, they would say no. No fuss, no paddy, just no. So back at chapter 1, if you've got it open in front of you, uh, chapter 1 verse 8, they just said no. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to define himself in this way. This was a food that had been sacrificed to idols and for Daniel that was a sign that he was submitting himself to the gods of the Babylonians which he had no intention of doing. So he just said no. Daniel wasn't very stressed about it but the official was in verse 10. He says I'm scared stiff that if this goes wrong Nebuchadnezzar will have my head. So Daniel comes up with a test uh, and the test was well let's go for 10 days we can just eat vegetables and then we'll see if we're fitter or more healthier than the others. And then verse fifteen a big cheer for vegetarians. No, just an awkward laugh, okay? That's as good as vegetarians get. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So they said no, and it ended well, but it might not always end well. And the book of Daniel is clear about that. You see, in chapter 3, Daniel's three friends got themselves into a right pickle. Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that everyone had to bow down to his statue and they very simply said, no, no fuss, no paddy, just no. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, this is brilliant faith this is, the God we serve is able to, to save us, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Fantastic faith. What happens? What's the result of all of that? Well, their faith is equally rewarded, and the king turns to praise again. Because these people said no. you notice what's happening. When they said yes and serve God wholeheartedly, it made a difference to this pagan nation, to this pagan king. When they said no, it made a similar difference to this pagan nation, to this pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar said, well, this is amazing. This is amazing. They stood in the fire, if you know the story. The three of them were thrown into the fire. And as they looked into the fire, it looked like there were four people in the fire. Uh, fourth, perhaps an angel of God, maybe even Jesus himself. I'll leave you to worry about that. And and, and at the end, they they came out unscathed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, wow, this is the living God. And he worshipped him again. Why? Because four young lads said no. Four young lads said no. Daniel would also have to say no again in chapter 6. That happened when Daniel was young in chapter 6. A new king Babylonian, the the powers of Babylon, had risen by now and fallen. It came true, part of it, in Daniel's lifetime. Isn't that brilliant? So by the time Daniel was getting to the end of his life, the power of Babylon had risen and fallen. The Medes and the Persians were now in charge. King Darius was there. He also issued a stupid decree that everyone should pray to uh, his God. And Daniel just said, No. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with a window open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. I'm not moving. No. I'm not budging. How old is Daniel? He's about 90 years of age now. Beautiful. Beautiful man of God, from his younger days to his final... No. No. No, there's a higher authority. No. He just said no. What was the result of that? Well, a different pagan king worshipped the living God. Because Daniel just said no. And, and, and get this, I'm finishing now. And, and get this. The, the, this. This section of the book, so the, the history book, ends with this lovely picture. It's the night. Daniel is in the lion's den. Peaceful, with an angel. Lions are sleeping, snoring. Everything's fine in the lion's den. The king, what's he doing on his bed? He's wide awake, he cannot sleep, he knows that there's an injustice. He's restless, he's out of control. The king who has all the power, the king who who rules the whole of the known world cannot sleep for he's restless and anxious. The servant of God is quietly asleep in with the lions. Which kingdom do you want to align yourself with? There is a kingdom today that looks so powerful and overwhelming. But actually, in the end, it's passing away. Just say no. Sherry Parnallis, one of our members, she's a barrister and uh, she specializes in family law but more recently she's been working with Christians that got themselves in a bit of hot water representing Christians who've just said no. I've asked Sherry to just share a little bit of her experience with that.
1: Well I have to be careful in what I do say. Obviously I have uh, duties of confidentiality but some of you have heard because I spoke briefly uh, at the church weekend about the case I was involved in. Um, Rosa Parks, Oh, didn't represent Rosa Parks because obviously she's she said, but Rosa Parks um, had a great faith in Jesus. In fact, she was uh, said to have said, God is everything to me. And one of the things that, that I've learned through doing this case as well is when you look back in the annals of history of people who've stood up and said yes to the Lord and saying no to this world and to the expectations of this world is that we actually remember them people like Martin Luther, people like Rosa Parks who uh, refused to give up her seat for, for a white person because actually she saw herself, she had dignity, and as a Christian she grew up being taught about the love of God for her as an individual. Um, people like um, Elizabeth Fry, Wilberforce, people who were prepared to say no. And we remember them, we stand back in awe and we think, wow, these people were amazing. But they were ordinary, just ordinary people the gentleman I represented in, in this case uh, was a 60-year-old man who was in employment, had an impeccable working record. But something happened at work and he made a stand against it. And they said to him, oh no, you don't. Um, you can't say that, you, you're not allowed to say that. And they spoke with him, he immediately admitted that he had those views, that religious belief, and As a result of that, they questioned him three further times. Um, There was only, he just needed to say, look, I said it, and then they needed to decide what they wanted to do as far as disciplining him. But no, they spent three further sessions effectively interrogating him about his Christian beliefs. And as a result of that, he was sacked from his job. When in court, I cross-examined the... uh, One of the senior management people, um, I asked her, I said to her, Mr. X is a man of integrity, isn't he? And she said, yes, he is. And that was the thing that really struck me. I thought she had said a lot of really, (laughs) she had been really um, a tormentor to him. He saw her very much as a person who had done a lot of things to harm his situation at work and make things difficult for him. But when she was confronted with that question, he is a man of integrity she could only tell the truth and that he was. And I thought, the world stands back. Sometimes we think, well, if we say this, we're afraid. What might people think? What will people think of us? This doesn't sound like you know, the sound bites of this world by us not buying into this culture. It makes us stand out and we kind of want to blend in. But this gentleman absolutely was, I was so impressed by his, his faith, which is unshakable despite being put in situations where he could have tried to water it down or make it sound a little bit um, more palatable, he refused to do so. So I want to encourage all of you in your situations, whether it be at work or with your friends, sometimes, as Simon was saying earlier, we want to kind of blend in. We don't want to make waves. But actually, the people who we remember in history, the people who've made a difference, so those who actually were prepared to say, No. And you remember the sermon that Simon probably preached a a few weeks ago about saying enough is enough. Enough is enough. And in fact, we'll see in the papers, in numerous cases, whether it's somebody wearing a a cross, whether it's somebody who, who offers to pray with somebody who's terminally ill, and these people are losing their jobs. But in small ways, in your community, you can make a difference as well. By, I suppose when Simon was saying it's difficult, but it's empowering ourselves and looking at Calvary I always think that there's a song I used to sing um, when I was growing up called Take Another Look at Calvary. And when we look at the price that Christ paid for us, how can we but not um, take that stand? He gives us then that, that strength and that courage to stand against the tide. So um, I just want to encourage you in that regard. I won the case, well, we won the case, um, which was a great blessing. And this gentleman was certainly vindicated for what he went through. But it, it came at a cost. He you know, he, he didn't get his job back. He didn't want his job back. He got some compensation. But ultimately, you know, he was vindicated for the stand that he took. So I just want to encourage you in that regard. And one of the things that the Christian Legal Center mentioned was that it's the ordinary people in the pews, the ordinary Christians that they're being so stunned by. It's not the great minister, the man with the you know a five pound bible you know with a stained glass voice it's the ordinary man and woman in the street who are actually saying no when their back is against the wall they're saying actually no i'm not going to back down these are my beliefs and this is what i believe in so be encouraged you're not alone if you're in a situation where you feel that you know how could i say that or you know even saying you know go to church these days people raise their eyebrows i was in the sudan um, in fact uh, last year and with Alan, he's obviously here in church, and it was interesting because one of the ladies said, Oh, I sing in the choir, and I said, Oh, you know, you sing in a choir, and she's like, They said, Oh, where's that? She said, Well, actually we meet at church. Not that I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, how sad. Well, how things have changed so markedly. But actually maybe that's where we step up to the plate as Christians and we make it clear. We don't not ashamed. We're not ashamed of our Lord and our God. And so I encourage you in that regard that to not be ashamed and to stand fast for him. Because if we stand, it says in the Bible, if, when, this, when the um, enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And we have that confidence that, that the Lord will stand with us and give us encouragement. I do remember a minister <laughs> saying once um, that somebody in the congregation had said to him, when the, spirit, when, the enemy, when the enemy comes in, it should be a comma, like a flood. The Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> it's when the enemy comes in like a flood. And sometimes it feels like we're being overwhelmed. But the Spirit of the Lord will come in and raise up that standard for us. And, and as we stand firm, he promises to stand with us. So be encouraged. And that's all I'm going to say. Because Simon, <laughs> Simon will Very, much, for me very
0: much indeed. Let's give Sherry on the floor and and let's stand let's stand everybody let's stand and uh, that was the event it's time to process what God wants to do in our in our lives speaking into our into our hearts what am I going to do about what I sense God has been saying to me maybe some of you it's time to say yes to the place where God has placed you you've been fighting it maybe for many years I wish I wasn't in this place I wish I didn't have this job. I wish I had a job. I I wish I was there and not here. I wish it was this and not that. And we've ended up speaking out curses, or at least in our hearts, when we've been called to worship the living God in that place. And maybe in your spirit, you know God's been speaking. It's time to say, yes, I accept where you have placed me. And I know that you are enough. And for others of us, God's been speaking about the fact we've so easily blended in. There are perhaps moments when we should have said no. We pride ourselves that we didn't say yes. We probably said nothing, but we didn't say no. And there's something that God's laying his finger on by his spirit that we need to agree with him today. It's time to say no, to worship him in the yes, and to worship him in the know.